Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host. Today, we'll be talking with Celine Yacoub, author of The United States Since 1945, Winds of Hope, Storms of Discord. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I wonder if you could start by telling the audience something about yourself and how you got started on this particular project. Sure. I am a historian of U.S. foreign relations. I teach at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I've written a couple books uh, I had written a couple of books previously focusing on U.S. involvement in the Middle East. Um, but then in um, 2017, I was approached by the uh, by Cambridge University Press, uh, and they asked if I would be interested in writing this more general survey. And at first I thought I really wasn't uh, up to the job. It seemed really, really um, daunting and not something that I would really have the uh, capability to do. But as I thought about it, and in, and in particular as the um, as, as the senior editor, uh, Deborah Gershenowitz, described her vision of the book to me, I started getting more captivated by it, and I agreed to uh, to, to try this. So um, that, it was I was approached by the press, but then very quickly got uh, immersed in the idea myself. Now, you had many themes in the book. I thought we'll start by looking at theme one, the federal investment in private economy. Tell us about that. Give us some examples. Yeah, well, there's long been a debate over the extent and nature of the uh, U.S. government's investment in the private economy, you know, the proper extent and nature, how much and in what ways should the U.S. government be uh, shaping the domestic economy? And, you know, this goes all the way back, well, actually, uh, to well before the period I start, 1945. But, you know, in, in 1945, essentially what you have is a debate over whether the New Deal policies should continue, with the Democrats essentially arguing in favor of continuing and expanding the kinds of uh, investments and uh, 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 policies sustaining the economy that uh, the that they had begun in the 1930s, and the Republicans, you know, either opposing them altogether or uh, trying to put some 
um, limits on them and you know, keeping the U.S. government from the, keeping the federal government from regulating the economy to such a significant degree or uh, trying to limit the size and growth of the social safety net uh, policies like um, uh, like social security. And I mean, essentially what happens is that for the first oh, quarter century after uh, the end of World War II, there's a general um, consensus in favor of a pretty robust uh, U.S. government role in the private economy. Um, but then starting in the late 70s, uh, more conservative ideas about managing the economy start to take precedence. And that, of course, comes into most clearest focus with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. And it's gone back and forth ever since. But I would say essentially the more conservative approach has tended to be at least a lot more prevalent um, than it was earlier. I mean, the, just the, the values and ideas behind the New Deal faded, lost some credibility. Uh, it became more respectable to argue that the business class should play a bigger role in managing the economy. Um, so that, that that's the broad outline of the debate that has occurred over the last three quarters of a century. Theme two, Washington's geopolitical engagement. Tell us more. Okay. Well, that um, is largely the story of the Cold War that began very soon after the end of World War II. Um, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, there was a very intense rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, and following the um, Chinese Revolution of 1949, uh, China uh, also joined the, the communist world. And so the United States and its allies in Europe primarily engage in this long geopolitical contest against the communist world. And it, the, it ends pretty dramatically and decisively in um, uh, the late 80s and early 90s with the collapse of the Soviet Union. But along the way, you have some very significant um, events, the most prominent and traumatic of them being the uh, Korean War of the early 50s and the, the Vietnam War from the uh, mid 60s to the mid 70s. Uh, and these are events that are, uh, especially the Vietnam War, very controversial uh, at home and have interact with domestic policies in all kinds of um, fascinating ways. And of course, it's been more than 30 years now since the end of the Cold War. So there's a whole uh, set of uh, new policies and engagements that the United States has um, uh, undertaken in those years. And the, the broad arc of that story is a growing propensity towards uh, intervening in foreign trouble spots, which becomes easier for the United States to do now that it doesn't have to worry about Soviet uh, interference. But that carries problems of its own, uh, especially uh, in situations like Iraq and Afghanistan, where even though there aren't any major world powers stopping the United States from intervening, the kinds of resistance uh, that it uh, encounters locally, you know, from ordinary Iraqis and Afghans, um, organized, of course, in political group and military groupings that are very um, hostile to the United States, those kinds of opposition uh, become more than the United States can handle. And you see, in general, 
um, a broad retreat uh, from the world stage, although that has been reversed to some extent by what has happened in the last couple of years with the Russian intervention in Ukraine, which in turn has, of course, stimulated the United States and its allies to become more active, and the the recent, uh, the very recent um, carnage in Israel Palestine, of course, has caused the United States to play a more visible vocal, uh, global role. Team three, demographic transformations. What's going on with the demographic situation? Well, essentially there what you see is a shift away from a population that is uh, overwhelmingly white and of European um, origin to one that is still predominantly white, but um, also uh, can, includes many uh, people from different parts of the world uh, and people from different um, races and ethnicities. Um, and that, of course, is connected in important ways to the sorts of policies and politics that have unfolded uh, domestically. The, there was a very significant transformation in our immigration laws in the mid-1960s that made it uh, easier for people from all over the world to immigrate to the United States. Prior to that time, the immigration laws had been um, essentially stacked in favor of Western and Northern European immigrants, uh, whereas now it was possible uh, for people from all over the world to immigrate. And that, of course, has um, uh, caused a pretty significant transformation in our demographics so that we're, we're a far less white European origin society than we used to be. Absolutely. And the last thing, the technological changes in the digital age. Okay. Um, well, so there's a, I mean, obviously there's been a pretty substantial um, series of transformations that have occurred on the technological level. And, you know, starting in the 1940s, of course, the big changes there have to do with um, uh, the, the proliferation of television, which had been invented a couple decades earlier, but didn't become commercially viable until the late 40s. Uh, and also um, military technology, the you know the advent of the nuclear age with um, the dropping of uh, atomic bombs on Japan at the very end of World War II, um, uh, you know it uh, brings on a whole new world. And initially, the United States has a monopoly on nuclear weapons, but the Soviet Union, in just a few years, de uh, developed its own first atom bomb, and thereafter you have a pretty uh, vigorous and at times quite terrifying arms race between the superpowers and then, of course, other nations developing nuclear weapons of their own. Um, so separate from that, of course, you've got uh, transformations in um, the way that we share information. A big part of that has to do with the uh, digital uh, revolution that really kicks in in the 1980s with the uh, proliferation and popularization of personal computers. A decade after that, you see the internet really coming into its own. And, you know, a couple of decades after that, the emergence of social media, which has had all kinds of 
impacts on the ways in which we relate to one another, organize our politics, elect our presidents. It, you know, obviously it's, uh, you know, it, it underlies the form in which we're conducting this interview right now. Now, chapter one, there were so many interesting facts here. You entitled it Wake Up Willie from War to Post-War, 1945 to 1948. Tell us, how did you get that title and what are some of the interesting facts of that chapter? Well, that chapter, um, it's looking at the period from uh, the, the, the immediate end of World War II until the, essentially till the end of uh, President Harry Truman's first term, although it's not, it's not really a, a term in its own right, because he is thrust into the presidency at the very beginning of what would have been uh, Franklin Roosevelt's fourth term, and he just finishes out those remaining three plus years, and then of course gets elected in his own right in 1948. So I'm just covering that period from 45 to 48. the The title of the chapter <clears throat> comes from an opening vignette in which I <clears throat> talk about. <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> sorry about that. I uh, essentially um, describe this news story uh, that depicts a group of uh, white men in a barbershop who are um, talking about the fact that the um, that Jackie Robinson has just been signed to a, uh, a major, uh, rather a minor league baseball team, which is setting him up to become uh, the first African American playing in the. Uh, major leagues since the late 19th century. So the, the fact that he's been signed on to this uh, important uh, minor league team s- tells us that he is likely to be joining the majors. And these white uh, uh, baseball fans are are talking about that um, uh, that possibility, you know, with varying uh, degrees of enthusiasm. Um, and um, I'd have to go back and look at the. Um, the, the passage again to remind myself of the exact words, but uh, one of the of the white men is admonishing the others, essentially saying, "Why are you uh, treating this as some terrible new development? You know, there have been you know black players in other major um, athletic venues like boxing and um, uh, and Olympic sports. You know, uh, Jesse Owens had been a major star in 1936. Uh, Joe Lewis was a was a major boxer at the time, um, and. Um, the uh, one of the I boy, I'd have to th- remind myself. I'd go back and look at the passage itself. But um, do you can you read those? I don't have the book in front of me. Well, that that gives the the audience a little taste as to what they can uh, mm-hmm. when they read your book because there were so many nuggets in this chapter. You even talked about a housing shortage that I wasn't aware of that. And also inflation during that time period. So, uh, oh yes, absolutely. This is a really good chapter to let people know what was actually happening. Uh, another nugget in the chapter was the Civil Rights Committee of 1947. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that comes out of a report that um, is commissioned by President Truman. Um, in the late 1940s to respond to the uh, terrible upsurge in violence and other forms of really oppressive discrimination against African-Americans 
uh, in the immediate aftermath of World War II. I mean, obviously, this had been going on for, for generations previously, but what you see is with the return of Black veterans um, in 1945 and 1946, following the end of the war, is this upsurge of violence against, uh, against many of those Black veterans, and also an upsurge against African Americans generally, um, uh, because they are uh, redoubling their efforts to uh, get their rights at home. I mean, they've been doing this for for decades already, but there had been a, a major upsurge of civil rights activism during World War II, and that uh, is even intensified further at the end of uh, of the war. And so there's this really uh, horrific white backlash against uh, African Americans in 1946, 47, and uh, President Truman, who has a, a mixed record on civil rights is um, goaded to act. And so he convenes this uh, con- uh, this distinguished commission of, uh, of prominent citizens, most, most of them white, but there are a couple African-Americans on this commission. I think there are 13 members. And they survey the situation and write this very uh, critical and in some cases scathing report about the state of race relations in America in 1947. And what they're essentially saying is that this is this is unacceptable. We have a whole group of, of citizens who are um, uh, not fully brought into the, uh, the national community. They're denied all kinds of uh, political, social, and economic rights. And the, the federal government needs to uh, step in and enact vigorous policies to uh, start correcting the situation. Now, there are, uh, there's a whole host of recommendations that this commission uh, puts forward. Um, very few of them actually get enacted because <clears throat> at this time, the um, a political system is, is very heavily dominated by segregationist forces, especially the U.S. Senate, where you have a lot of uh, committee chairs who are uh, uh, essentially white men from the South who are committed to segregation. And most of them at this time uh, are Democrats because this was back when the uh, the Democratic Party itself included uh, a substantial segregationist wing and the, and the South was overwhelmingly Democratic. Uh, so, um, yeah, so that, that's definitely a major part of the, of the story of the 1945 to 1948 period. Now, chapter two, we may now relax our guard, hot war abroad and cold war, war at home, 1949 to 1954. You, you gave us so much information about what was going on here. Joe McCarthy, hydrogen bomb, Korean War, firing of General MacArthur. Would you like to expound on some of those? Yes, sure. I mean, essentially, this is the period that coincides with the intensification of the cold, the uh, red scare at home. And that in turn is related to an intensification of the cold war there. You know, there had been, of course, some very significant um, uh, conflicts, not, not, not uh, military conflicts, but sort of diplomatic disputes um, taking place between the, the two cold war blocks in the first few years after World War II, but um, it's really in in the very late 1940s, like 1949 and into 1950, that the Cold War contest itself really starts to become 
uh, uh, intense and deadly. Uh, you see it first with the Soviet detonation of the first atomic bomb on the Soviet side. So that breaks the nuclear monopoly that the United States enjoys in 1949. And then uh, around the same time, in the summer and fall of 1949, you see the Chinese revolution. So uh, this huge nation, uh, it comes under communist rule. And then shortly after that, in uh, mid-1950, the outbreak of the Korean War. And those events really... um, kind of uh, spark a panic at home, because what um, a lot of Americans are concerned about is the possibility that other Americans have spied for the communist side. And there indeed had been uh, a number of cases in which it was discovered that um, American individuals, whether they're in the military or in the U.S. government um, or in the in the private sector, had... Um, uh, had essentially uh, conducted espionage on behalf of the Soviet Union, but those most of those instances were discovered in the very either during World War II and or immediately afterward. You know, by the time we get to 1947-48, nearly all of those spies have already been apprehended. So it, there really isn't an ongoing danger of Soviet subversion or. Uh, communist subversion of American institutions, but because of the incredible um, uh, escalation of the Cold War, the, the overall stakes are raised, and that causes Americans at home to uh, to become even more obsessed with the possibility that there are domestic spies. So it's sort of an irony, you know, even as the actual threat of uh, communist espionage wanes just because of what's taking place internationally, the domestic fear of that espionage increases. And so in that context, you see um, uh, figures like Joe McCarthy, a senator from Wisconsin, uh, come to the fore and make these very wild accusations, uh, most of them not based in re- in, in reality, um, about uh, how certain individuals are continuing to spy for the Soviet Union, and or for or for communist China. Now that it has, now that uh, the Russia, the Chinese Revolution has taken place. So in that atmosphere, you have um, a real intensification of the Red Scare, and you know lots of, of riot lives are are ruined on account of it. You know people lose their jobs, or find themselves unemployable or are ostracized uh, socially. Um, and it, it finally does um, reach a sort of climax in 1954 when you, there's this very dramatic set of hearings in the Senate where uh, Joe McCarthy is accusing the U.S. military of all institutions of being uh, infiltrated by communists. And he, he basically overplays his hand. He, he makes charges that are just too wild to be credible. He bullies his colleagues and witnesses and in general acts in such an overbearing um, and over-the-top manner that he loses uh, popularity. And one key um, ingredient in this, and this touches on the theme of technological transformation, is that these hearings uh, in, in the Senate in 1954 are nationally televised. You know, one of the early instances where you have a 
you know, a, an event on Capitol Hill uh, being uh, uh, televised nationally. There have been some uh, a couple of hearings prior to that on uh, the prevalence of organized crime, but this was the this was the first time that something involving communism and national security was um, was was televised nationally. So the you know millions of Americans tune in and watch this drama unfold, and they see Joe McCarthy behave in this very um, unpleasant manner, and he. So he personally loses uh, credibility and popularity. And in in the years following that experience, there's a, a general recognition in the country that um, that people need to be more careful about lodging charges of communist subversion against other Americans. I mean, the society as a whole remains, you know, intensely anti-communist, um, but it's it's not quite so easy to just um, tar someone's reputation uh, without some pushback, you know, from others leaping to that person's defense. So it's, it's, it's so you have a, a subtle transformation in the manner in which the Cold War is being waged inside the United States. Now, let's look at uh, the 1950s. You have an entire chapter. It's like turning over a rock, America in the 50s. Tell us about home ownership and what was happening here. Okay, well, that's uh, that's a really interesting transformation, and it really helps us understand the world we inhabit today. Um, essentially, what you see is a um, um, a massive growth of suburbs. Now, this had this had started up um, in the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties. There were some federal policies designed to uh, encourage home ownership and um, encouraging people who lived in cities to to move out to the suburbs. But this really kicks into high gear in the nineteen fifties. Um, and it, so what you get is the, this, um, really rapid, um, growth of suburbs. So they spring up, it seems almost overnight, you know, around the, the major metropolitan, uh, areas of the country. Um, and so you have the, this new form of community, you know, the suburban community, you know, often, um, promoted by some company, um, like the one that, um, uh, uh, Levitt, whose first name I'm uh, I'm blanking on, um, uh, the um, you know the Levittowns, the, the 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 entrepreneur who spearheaded um, the growth of Levittowns, you know, so companies are promoting the the growth of these suburbs by uh, pr- uh, making it easy for not all Americans, but from primarily white middle class Americans or or white working class Americans who are moving into the middle class to uh, purchase um, relatively inexpensive and comfortable homes in the suburbs. Now, as, as I mentioned, there's an, there's an important racial dimension to this, which is that many of these, uh, Bill Levitt, that's his name, William, William Levitt, Bill Levitt, um, there are many of these um, suburban developments explicitly exclude African Americans. I mean, there are there are actual bylaws preventing the uh, purchase of property or the sale of prop uh, by African Americans or the sale of property to them. Um, and to some extent, this is catering to uh, the the presumed 
prejudice on the part of the cust- the white customers themselves, the white home buyers. Um, Bill Levitt at one point made this uh, uh, remark to the effect of, you know, I personally am not racist. In fact, I'm Jewish and I care deeply about egalitarianism and I have no place in my heart for uh, discrimination. But you know, 90% of my customers are committed to uh, racial segregation. So if I were to admit to permit a black family to move into any of my developments, uh, I would there would be a, a sudden exodus of white families from those same developments. Um, so part of it is this uh, perception of what the market demands, but it also is related to federal policy. The uh, starting in the uh, 1930s, the the federal government had. Uh, uh, promoted home ownership on the part of citizens, but often did so in ways that uh, excluded African Americans. Um, and this was also uh, echoed and amplified by the private sector. In many cases, you had banks that would refuse to extend loans to African Americans. Um, and so in, 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 there were these very kind of sinister interlocking systems of discrimination that kept uh, black people uh, from joining these communities. Really not, you know, it, it really wasn't until the late 1960s when you had, you know, federal legislation outlawing this kind of discrimination that you see significant change. And of course, even after that change is, uh, change is instituted, um, many African-Americans still have a hard time uh, moving to the suburbs just because of economic um, barriers. Uh, you know, there, there aren't any laws or rules preventing them from buying property, but they, they, they lack the economic ability to do so. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Now, in Chapter 4, you talk more about the Cold War, 1956 to 1963. But in Chapter 5, you go over uh, and you entitle this chapter, Is This America, Civil Rights, and the Liberal Movement? Now, you talk about so many things that occurred. Can you connect the reader to some of those historical events? Yeah, well, that chapter really focuses in on what is often seen as the sort of classic phase of the civil rights movement, the period from 1960 to 1965, when the civil rights movement makes its most significant gains in terms of changing actual laws. Um, You know, prior to this time, you have this um, uh, system of legal segregation that is existing, you know, primarily in the South, but not entirely there. There are, there are pockets of legal segregation persisting in uh, the rest of the country as well, especially in, the, in this form of housing discrimination I, I mentioned a moment ago. Um, but essentially, what you, I mean, the, main, the core of it is the fact that you have uh, the Jim Crow system in the South, which is uh, the uh, legally mandated separation of the races, you know, different facilities 
uh, you know, public accommodations, uh, restaurants, movies, parks, zoos, uh, swimming pools, you know, they are all uh, racially segregated. And, you know, depending on your race, you need to go to a particular, you know, version of that accommodation. And as you might expect, the accommodations for African-Americans are usually, you know, of much poorer quality and of uh, receiving far less public investment. And then on top of that, you have racial discrimination in uh, uh, employment, where people can be denied certain jobs or professional opportunities on the basis of race. And uh, also, very importantly, racial discrimination of schools, of public schools. And so, you know, starting in the 50s, there had been some significant uh, legal developments chipping away at this, primarily the uh, Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court ruling in 1954, which uh, outlawed racial discrimination in public education. Um, the problem was implementing this ruling. And for really a, a decade and more, really 20, 20 years and, and, you know, in some ways uh, longer than that, um, white society, especially in the South, but not only there, uh, resists the um, the implementation of these desegregation rulings. And, and so the real challenge is, you know, for the civil rights movement is actually getting local communities, local governments, and to some extent state and, and ultimately the federal government to um, put their weight behind these principles that have been enacted in the courts. I mean, it's, it's if you have a, a legal or a court decision that goes your way, it doesn't do you much good unless local and other you know, governmental bodies and, and the broader communities um, in which they're embedded are actually you know, committed to implementing those decisions. And so that was what uh, a, a big part of the civil rights movement was. And so what you see in the, um, in the period from 1960 to 1965 is a you know, series of actions um, spearheaded by uh, figures like Martin Luther King, but also plenty of others, and organizations like the Southern Christian Leadership uh, Conference, which King heads, and um, the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, which is a, um, a somewhat more uh, more radical and ambitious um, uh, movement led by by students and, uh, and other young people. These and lots and lots of other um, local groups and you know, you know countless individuals whose names we don't remember but should. Um, the, this is a mass-based movement that occurs in the first half of the 1960s. That essentially, I mean, the the primary way in which they um, operate is to basically force the broader. Uh, national community, the, you know, the, the public opinion in the nation as a whole, and the federal government to take notice of instances of severe racial discrimination occurring in different, in particular parts of the country, especially the South, but not only there. So they stage these events uh, like the uh, sit-in movement in the South, where uh, you know young people just go to. Uh, to department store um, lunch counters 
uh, diners and, and demand service and uh, refuse to uh, to get out get up out of their stools until they they are served. And you know, typically, what happens is um, the uh, the establishment refuses to serve them. So you have this long standoff. Sometimes the police are brought in to arrest the sit-in protesters. Uh, other uh, there was you know freedom riders, uh, young not necessarily young people, but often young people um, going into the South in integrated groups to um, <clears throat> challenge, <clears throat> excuse me, to challenge the segregated systems that um, uh, prevail on the buses or in the bus stations of the South. Um, and what typically happens is um, if you go into a, a, a community and you very publicly and openly defy the segregationist system that is in place and is enforced by law, you get a very hostile and often violent reaction from local whites who are committed to maintaining segregation. And, you know, this can take some really, really violent and brutal forms. And because, and again, this is picking up on the technological theme I mentioned earlier, because this, we're now in the television age, you now have uh, uh, television cameras on the scene recording these uh, these standoffs in which uh, the civil rights protesters, mostly black, are behaving entirely nonviolently. They're you know using Gandhian civil uh, liberty, civil uh, disobedience techniques, and they are being attacked and in some cases beaten, and in you know some very rare but uh, horrifying cases killed uh, by the white upholders of segregation, and this is being filmed and um, shown to the entire nation. And it does create the uh, a political support for federal legislation banning those kinds of, um, of, dis- of discrimination um, and segregation. So that, that's the basic strategy of, the, of that phase of the civil rights movement, which is to, to force these confrontations that uh, arouse the attention of the nation and spark federal legislation. And so, so essentially that chapter tells that story. Chapter six, you talk about fighting abroad and unraveling at home, 1963 to 1968. So basically you, you go more in detail about Vietnam and the voting rights and all of the, the killings that took place during that time. Yeah. Um, so that's um, a very key uh, moment in U.S. history, which is essentially the um, the escalation of the Vietnam War by the United States. And these are some very conscious, although often conflicted, uh, decisions made by um, uh, President Johnson primarily to <clears throat> to really ramp up the U.S. role in this conflict in Vietnam, where the United States is trying to um, maintain the partition of Vietnam, trying to prevent the um, North Vietnamese government, which is primarily communist, but also nationalist, from taking over the entire country, from, from reuniting Vietnam under its own leadership. And the the problem is that 
it's essentially a civil war. I mean, the the international community in the United States itself um, has previously recognized that Vietnam is a single country that should not be partitioned, or or rather that its partition should be ended uh, in uh, fairly soon. But essentially, the United States goes against its prior commitments in favor of the reunification of Vietnam in order to uh, preserve this non-communist South Vietnamese regime. And the problem is that this regime has very little public support. Uh, It is uh, incompetent and often corrupt. And the only way that this regime can be maintained, it becomes clear, is by sending more and more U.S. troops into South Vietnam to shore it up. So initially, you have a you know a large you know many like thousands of U.S. so-called advisors in the country. There are you know, military personnel who are theoretically at least not supposed to be engaging in combat, although well before the um, the official start of U.S. combat operations, you do see um, uh, U.S. military personnel engaging in combat. Um, but it, it's by, by 1965, it becomes clear that that policy alone of, uh, of at least officially confining the United States to advising South Vietnam is not going to do the job. That the only way to prevent the North from uh, overrunning the South, and, it, and the North has the help of a of a South Vietnamese insurgency known as the Viet Cong, the, the only way to prevent the North and the uh, Viet Cong from prevailing is to s- send U.S. combat troops in ever larger numbers into South Vietnam. So you have this rapid escalation from 1965 until 1968, uh, but at the end of which there are more than half a million U.S. troops in South Vietnam, uh, fighting a a really really brutal war uh, in which, you know, the United States is in use, using increasing amounts of firepower uh, of uh, extraordinary lethal character uh, weapons like napalm that are you know officially uh, designed to clear jungle areas so that uh, the U.S. military can have greater visibility on the location of enemy forces. But they, it also just uh, well, it devastates the countryside, but also it, it just as a, as a weapon against human beings is really horrifying. It, it, it literally melts human flesh. And so the growing brutality of this war uh, becomes more and more visible uh, to Americans at home. And you, as a consequence of that, you have um, very severe criticism of the U.S. government coming from all political directions. By the way, you, you know there are people on the right, you know, hawks who think that the Lyndon Johnson administration is not doing enough to win the war. You know, they argue, they charge that the you know, Washington is forcing the military to fight the Vietnam War with one hand tied behind its back. That's an expression that's often used. Um, but the the most visible and I guess memorable uh, form of uh, criticism comes from the left, and you have you know anti-war protests uh, springing up all over the country, and also in a really fascinating way dovetailing with this new um, kind of counterculture, you know the hippie movement and the 
growing prevalence of drug use and you know eastern mysticism and you know just the, the, all the stuff that we associate with the the drugged out 60s you know that is emerging simultaneously with this anti-war movement um and so the 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 main or one of the main consequences of which is the strengthening of conservatism in the United States in reaction to all of this. Um, and it's also in reaction to the civil rights movement, which um, by, by the time we get into the late 1960s, enters a more radical phase as well. I mean, it's, in, it's, in the, it's at the same time that all of this anti-war activism is taking place that you see the emergence of the Black Power movement and the uh, growing prominence of groups like the Black Panthers that reject the uh, nonviolent approach of the civil rights movement of the first half of the decade and are much more uh, uh, militant. They're much more committed to the idea that uh, African Americans need to physically defend themselves against white violence also less um, less committed to racial integration. Um, in, in some of these black power organizations are committed to a form of uh, black separatism. So, you know, African-Americans should develop their own institutions. They, they shouldn't try to join white dominated, white dominated institutions, but should uh, develop ones of their own. So, so all of this is taking place. So, so essentially what you have in the, in the second half of the decade is this, um, upsurge of activism from the left that alarms and angers lots of Americans who are more conservative in their outlook. And this includes many people who are within the Democratic Party. I mean, they, they're maybe liberal in the more classic sense of, or the, or the more old-fashioned sense of, uh, of favoring, you know, being in favor of, uh, of labor unions. You know, maybe they want the U.S. government to play a bigger role in sustaining policies like social security, um, those kinds of things, but they, they don't like the, the kind, what they see as sort of wild anarchy taking place on the left, the, the, the rampant drug use, the, uh, the increasingly strident, uh, anti-war demonstrations, the, you know, the, the growing militancy, uh, uh, among, uh, African-Americans, all of that, uh, really, um, um, alarms people who, uh, who are taking a more um, centrist or conservative outlook. And that helps get Richard Nixon elected in 1968, um, essentially capitalizing on that growing sentiment and taking advantage of the fact that the Democratic Party itself is in deep disarray, largely over the Vietnam War, as well as over civil rights. And that brings us to chapter seven the presidency of Richard Nixon, 1969 to 1974. Uh, some of the nuggets that you brought about in this chapter, affirmative action, Earth Day, family assistance. You even talk about Kissinger and his role. Um, would you like to briefly tell us something about that chapter? Um, sure. So that, that essentially um, tracks the presidency of Richard Nixon, you know, he serves essentially one term and a half. <laughs> he's uh, he's reelected in 1972, but then the Watergate scandal brings him down and he uh, leaves office in the summer of 1974. Um, the, you know, the main developments that I track are the 
um, the Vietnam policies that Nixon follows, which are kind of uh, odd and often misunderstood. People sometimes have a hard time trying to figure out what Nixon was really trying to do um, because he sort of, he escalates and de-escalates the war simultaneously, sort of depending on which aspect of his policies you look at. Um, So his main Vietnam approach is uh, known as Vietnamization. The idea being that the, you know, it's become clear by 1968 that the escalation of U.S. involvement in the war is not working. So the, the United States needs to reverse course and start pulling troops out of Vietnam and to, but but also, it you know, still try to preserve South Vietnam as a an independent nation. So the way that the uh, Nixon administration tries to square that circle is by increasing its um, military and logistical support to the South Vietnamese military. So the, the fighting should be done primarily now by the South Vietnamese forces themselves with the United States uh, pulling its own troops out and um, and providing the South Vietnamese forces with increasing amounts of aid. But the other element of the U.S. strategy to, to aid the South Vietnamese is to uh, ramp up the airstrikes that the United States is conducting against enemy targets, both in Vietnam and in neighboring countries like Laos and Cambodia, and also at certain points to kind of expand the scope of the war so that you have U.S. troops, even though the, even as the number of U.S. troops in Southeast Asia is diminishing, the places in which they are operating um, are becoming more uh, numerous. So you have a, a, a an invasion or an incursion, as the administration puts it, into Cambodia in 1970, um, which really sets off uh, an explosion at home. It's 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 in response to the intervention in Cambodia that the Kent State tragedy occurs, where uh, there's a demonstration on the campus of the Kent State University campus, uh, a, a, a demonstration on the Kent State University campus, that uh, in the course of which uh, state national guard. Uh, come on the scene and open fire against the demonstrators, killing four students. Um, and there are there was another instance um, similar to that occurring at Jackson State University or Jackson State College, a a, prim- a predominantly black school um, in the South, uh, where I think two uh, people are killed and a large number wounded. Um, so essentially, what you have is this very very um, painful period where, you know, the number of Americans fighting in Vietnam is indeed uh, diminishing, but it's also a period of uh, certain forms of escalation of the, of the Vietnam War. And um, although the, the overall um, uh, intensity of the anti-war movement, you could say, is diminishing, you know, as the number of ground troops in Vietnam diminishes, there are these flashes of uh, of very vigorous protests, like what what followed Kent State, uh, occurring in the country. And, and the other main theme is the scandal that brought down Richard Nixon, the Watergate scandal, which is very closely connected to um, the Vietnam War in in the sense that a major impetus 
for the kinds of spying that uh, the Nixon administration engaged in uh, in this period was Nixon's desire to push back against the anti-war movement um, and also more generally to, to discredit his political opponents, most of them Democrats who were themselves very critical of his war policies. So, uh, so a big part of the effort that Nixon engaged in to spy on fellow citizens was shoring up his own uh, Vietnam policies. But of course, he, he he's caught in the act, you might say, um, and in a pretty extraordinary drama, the, you know, a large number of American institutions, the um, Congress, the courts, the news media, um, ferret out what Nixon had been up to and force his administration to account for itself. And um, it ultimately creates a situation in which uh, Nixon realizes that he doesn't have sufficient political support in the Senate to um, result in an acquittal uh, because it's becoming obvious that the House of Representatives is going to impeach him. And Nixon is not uh, going to – he realizes that he's not going to survive the Senate trial. Now, one thing – one point I make at the end of that chapter is that this underscores a very different political and uh, information environment existing in the first half of the 1970s, especially as compared with the inhabit we – the environment we inhabit today. I mean, basically – what happened was that oh, I, I should back up a second and say what it showed was that in the early 1970s there was still a broad enough consensus on what the political norms ought to be and what had actually occurred um so once it was uh you know the major news outlets especially television um programs um announced or uh, reported that there were tape recordings showing Nixon saying really incriminating things, it then became politically impossible for Nixon to remain in office because he didn't have sufficient support among his own uh, fellow Republicans to withstand the impeachment battle that he was facing. So in other words, it was possible to persuade uh, Americans across the political spectrum, you know, whether they're you know, Democrats or Republicans, that certain things had occurred and that they were wrong. Now, uh, you know, it turned out, okay, Nixon was, you know, trying to uh, spy on his fellow citizens and he was trying to um, impede the, the FBI and other investigative bodies from under, uncovering what had happened. Once it became clear that Nixon had done those things, it was generally agreed that those things were wrong and he could not remain president. If fast forward, you know, four and five decades to where we are now, and, you know, we're in a very different world where you have uh, rival perspectives on basic reality. You know, you have, you, you don't have a unified um, news media that can essentially present a picture to the public that the public will accept. Rather, you have these you know, rival centers of 
uh, information, rival sources of information that not only differ on what actually happened, but differ on whether certain things are wrong. So to take the case of Donald Trump, you know, to fast forward several decades, you know, there, there are all kinds of things that it can be shown Donald Trump has done that under, you know, under the, by the standards of previous generations would be considered completely unacceptable. But either um, Fox News and the conservative um, uh, news media that's uh, allied with Fox um, denies that these things happened at all, or even if it's unmistake, if it's undeniable that these things occurred, denies that these are really all that objectionable. So that gives uh, Trump the ability to survive these really damning revelations and, you know, even now be, um, you know, favored in the uh, in the polling between him and President Biden when when we're looking at uh, who's likely to win the next presidential election. So it, it just underscores how different things were half a half a century ago uh, in terms of the the political norms and uh, basic understandings of reality that prevailed across the political spectrum. And you went into detail about Reagan, then you talk about the Cold War, you look at Bill Clinton, uh, President Bush, and then you come into the, uh, Yes, We Can, 2009, and then you go into uh, the Trump years. But what is the message you want to leave the reader with once they finish this book? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a great question and probably a, a difficult one to ask or to, to answer. I mean, I guess, you know, one very basic thing I'm trying to do is just to spark readers' interest in this story. And, and many of my readers are um, college students. So to get them excited about the study of history, to persuade them that history, history of any kind, but certainly the history of the United States since World War II, is not just a you know, dry recitation of dates um, and facts, but is actually this you know, s- series of human dramas where uh, people of all walks of life, you know, whether we're talking about uh, political leaders, business leaders, uh, but also activists, people who are out in the street trying to affect change, uh, people in the private sector, um, uh, artists, musicians, ordinary people, just across the whole panoply of American experience, you've got th- these um, efforts to change the reality that we exist in, efforts to um, sort of gain some kind of mastery over people's circumstances and move the country in various directions. And, you know, this, the, the, the ways in which people want to effect change can be incredibly diverse. And I, I try as much as possible to um, provide some glimpse of the different perspectives, the different goals, the different uh, dreams and um, objectives, and also the different um uh, you know, fears and traumas experienced by people across the political, cultural, racial, ethnic uh, spectrum, um, so that 
you, just to convey a sense of the diversity of the country and the endless range of possibility and just how quickly things can change, how um, very um, abruptly, you know, one um, sort of era can come to an end and be succeeded by another. And, you know, because there's so much going on and there's only so much one can say in the 500 or so pages that I have at my disposal, a large part of what I'm trying to do is not so much to, you know, present a full, you know, fully realized or fully developed history of all of these stories that I touch on, but rather to just spark the um, imagination and the interest of the reader to persuade them that history actually is a really important and endlessly fascinating pursuit. And that, you know, after reading my book, they should keep reading and you know, go you know, pursue those little, you know, go down those little rabbit holes that they want to go down, you know, that they've learned about on the basis of reading my book. So it's, it's really an invitation to readers to, Keep keep at it to you know not stop with my book, but rather just you know look at some of the suggested readings I uh, list at the end of each chapter, uh, but also you know go find st- stuff that I don't mention that uh, takes you in a completely different direction. So yeah, it's so it's just largely an, an invitation to continue the discovery. Absolutely. Well, I've taken up enough of your time today. Can you tell us the next project you're going to be working on? Oh, well, I'm um, working on a couple different projects. One is a study of sort of a survey of U.S. involvement in the Middle East uh, from World War I to the present. So it's uh, it's somewhat similar in that it's a very, you know, a, a very broad study that incorporates just a huge amount of material and tries to convey it in fairly brisk uh, prose. And then um, another that's, that's less of a survey and more of a kind of deep dive is a study of the uh, domestic politics of American foreign policy from the late 60s to the early 90s. So this is a, it's a remarkable period. I, I kind of touched on it to some extent in the discussion today, where you know by, by the late 60s, the, the United States is bogged down in Vietnam, and there's a lot of pessimism and self-criticism about the role that the United States uh, has been playing in, you know, in the world and about you know, what is likely to occur in the future. Um, but then fast forward uh, less than 25 years to 1991, and you've got the end of the Cold War uh, with the United States you know, essentially emerging as the victor, although there are all kinds of problems that the nation still faces. And uh, you, the United States has just uh, prevailed in the first Gulf War of 1991. So it's a very different moment where there's lots of triumphalism and uh, optimism about the fact that the United States has won the Cold War, it's the sole remaining superpower, you know, it can solve all of the world's problems. I mean, of course, subsequent years uh, prove that not to be quite the case, but it is a very different uh, mood that sets in uh, by the time we get to the early 90s as compared with what we see in the late 60s. So basically talking about how, uh, as a society at home, we got from there to here. Well, we will be looking forward to both of those books. Thank you again for being on the podcast. 
Thank you so much, Deidre. It was a real pleasure.